0: Awesome. Thank you, Andrea, Jonathan, and the worship team. If you have your Bibles, turn to the gospel according to Luke, chapter 15. Luke, chapter 15. read a fascinating list of uh, questions to ask as you begin a new year. Donald Whitney uh, wrote a blog of just a few days ago. And as I read that, it, w- it was more than fascinating. They, they actually got kind of convicting. So I'm going to share that list with you. And at the end, I'm gonna, I want to ho- hone in on one particular question. Uh, But let me just give you real quick the 10. First of all, what's what's one thing you could do this year to increase your enjoyment of God? What's one thing you could do to increase your enjoyment of God? The second question, uh, this is really interesting. I'd love to do a message on this as well. What's the most humanly impossible thing that you're going to ask God to do this year? What is the most humanly impossible thing? That you're going to ask God to do this year. Number three, what's the single most important thing you could do to improve the quality of your family life? Now, that's pretty open-ended. So, uh, number four, in which spiritual discipline do you need the most to make the most progress? And what are you going to do about it? Number five, what's the single biggest? Uh, this is a good one. This one hurts. What is the single biggest time waster in your life? Okay, is it TV? I'll just give you a couple. I'm just going to share it. These are mine. TV, probably internet surfing, uh, maybe social media. Not for some of you, I mean, so, so but where do we waste most of our time? For, for many of us, we don't have time to do some of the things that we want to do the most. And, and so, so what is the single biggest time waster in your life? And, and, and the second part of the question is what are you going to do about it? Uh, number six, what's the most helpful new way? You could strengthen your church. What's the most helpful new way that you could strengthen your church? Uh, Number seven, for whose salvation, for whose salvation will you pray most fervently for this year? So who are you going to pray most fervently to be saved uh, this year? Number eight, uh, what's the most important way you will, by God's grace, uh, try to make this year different from last year, uh, number nine, uh, what thing could you, could you do to improve your prayer life uh, this year? And then this last one, number ten, is the one I really want to talk about this morning. Um, and, and I'm going to modify it just to fit our message a little bit. Wh- what what single thing? What what single thing do you plan to do this year that is going to matter for eternity? Wh- what one thing are you going to do this year? It's going to matter forever. Now, Andrew just saying that wonderful song, forever. Jesus is going to live forever. And if you know him, you're going to live forever. But what are we going to do this year that's going to impact somebody or something forever? Um, so, Here's the thing, and I'll just be up front. So much of what I do, and so much of um, of how I spend my time and how, how I spend my energy and, and even so much of how I spend my money doesn't appear to have an eternal purpose. I mean, so so think about that. How much of what we do, what we invest, what we spend is going to last forever. And then the kind of the second half of that, and this is kind of where we want to get to, wh- what about our church? Wh- what what single thing are we going to do or, or what are we going to focus on this year that, that's going to matter in 10 years or maybe 100 years or 1,000 years? What single focus can we have as a church that will matter for eternity? And that's a fair question. Now, uh, at, the, at the risk of being redundant, uh, I want to focus, as we begin a new year, I really want to spend some time this morning focusing on the issue of mission and the issue of what are we doing as a church that's going to matter forever because a lot of times we get involved and engaged in stuff that it's not bad stuff but does it really really have an eternal uh, impact now uh, in the Old Testament book Nehemiah uh, they were going to rebuild the wall, and God burdened his heart and He got a vision to rebuild the wall. So, that, so he and a group went from Jerusalem, they went back or went uh, from Babylon, back to Jerusalem, and, and they began to build the wall. But the issue was uh, it only took 52 weeks, 52 days uh, to build the wall. But the problem was about halfway through the project, after 26 days, the people had become so discouraged, and they'd become so distracted that Nehemiah had to stop what he was doing, and he had to recast the vision. He had to remind them, here's what we're doing, and here's why we're doing that. And even though what we talk about this morning, you're going to go, well, you know, we, we've talked about that, and, and I get that. But, but sometimes we just get distracted. Sometimes we get a little bit discouraged, and we get caught up doing things that maybe are not the most important things. And we just need to be reminded. And so this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to revisit the mission. Uh, and, and the reason is because Jesus was so passionate. And, and, and over and over and over, Jesus kept coming back to the mission. Now, uh, at, the, at the end of his little story in Luke, in Luke 19, where he talks about Zacchaeus, uh, Jesus said, the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost that was not the first time he said that. If you were not with us last week, we talked about a little conversation uh, Jesus had with three guys. Uh, Jesus is kind of going along, and there's kind of a lot of momentum, and a lot of people are following, and everything's good. He was kind of, it was kind of that time when he was kind of a rock star, and everybody kind of wanted a, a piece of the action. And this guy comes up to him and says, hey, Jesus, I'll follow you everywhere. And Jesus says, Really? He says, you know, foxes have holes and birds have nests, and I don't have anywhere to stay. You really want to follow me. And there was another guy evidently listening in, and so Jesus looks at him and says, hey, hey, you follow me. Well, that guy evidently he heard the conversation and he didn't want anything to do with it. He said, Well, you know, I need to go, I need to go bury my dad. After I bury my dad, I'll come back. And, you know, and Jesus says, no, no, let the dead bury the dead. You, you, you follow me. And, and then another guy, evidently privy to the conversation, says, "I'll follow you, but I need to go tell my family goodbye." And so Jesus, you know, begins to 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 talk to each of these about the cost of being a disciple. Now, the interesting thing about that is, before that conversation happens, Jesus sent some guys out to proclaim the gospel. And as soon as that conversation finishes, in the first part of Luke chapter 10, Jesus sends out the 72 and he says, I want you to go and I want you to proclaim the gospel. And, and so while discipleship is important, discipleship has at the heart of it, this command that, that, that we need to go after, you know, to fulfill the mission, we got to go after people who are lost. Because the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which is lost. Now, in the end of our message last week, we read from Luke 14, which is really a, a dialogue about the cost of discipleship. Where Jesus said, if a man doesn't hate his father and mother, his, his brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he can't be my disciple. Now, he was using hyperbole to talk about the cost of commitment. But before he did that, he told a parable it's the parable of the great banquet, and he compelled his servants. He says, go out into the city streets and compel those who are lost to come in. And they, they, the servants did that, and he said, uh, hey, uh, we still got room. And so Jesus says, okay, go into the highways and the hedges. Go to the brothels. Go to the parlors, the tattoo parlors. Go, go to the places. Where people are far from me, and compel them to come in. And then he, then he, having said that, he tells that story about, about, uh, about the cost of discipleship. And then we get to Luke 15, and he gives a succession of stories about the value of people who are lost. And and so what I want us to do is, and, and the third of those stories is is very famous, very familiar, if you're a churchgoer, if you're not a churchgoer, you probably know this story. It's the story of the prodigal son. Let, let me read that, and, and then I want to, uh, when we read that, I'm going to share with you two thoughts about Jesus, and then we're going to end today. Uh, I'm going to ask you to make a commitment today. I, I'm going to give you a challenge and ask you to commit to something, that if you'll do that, it'll matter to you and to somebody for eternity. But let's read the story Uh And and I'm not going to read all of it because we'll never get to the whole message uh, or to the whole passage. So let's, Luke 15, let's begin in verse 11, and we'll probably stop at 24. It says, and he said, now Jesus just told two stories, which I'll reference in a minute. But he said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them, not many days later. And they begin to celebrate. Let's pray together. Father, in these next few minutes, I I pray that our hearts would be stirred uh, as we look at, literally, Jesus, at your passion for people uh, who are lost. And so would you speak just with clarity into our hearts, Holy Spirit? Would you speak with conviction into our hearts uh, as those of us who are followers of Christ that, that, that we might... God, that we might feel the weight of your call on our life. God, that we might feel the weight of the call on the church to have a passion for that which is lost. Father, for those here this morning that have yet to decide to follow Jesus, that are not really sure if they want to sell out to him and his kingdom, God, I pray that they would see in our text and in our message the passion that Jesus has for him, the love, the the concern that he has, the care that he has for that which is lost. And so, God, would you have your way in every heart? Would you have your way in every light every life this morning? And we'll be careful, Lord, to give you the honor and the glory for all that you do, Father. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we and we kind of skipped over it, but as the chapter opens up. Um, the, the situation is kind of interesting. If you look up in, in verse one, it, it says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And so Jesus has probably got this entourage. You know, a lot of things have been happening. You know, miracles have been going on. People have been healed. People have been fed. Just a lot going on. And, and because that was true, the crowds were just expanding. And the interesting thing about it is a lot of the people that were following, the scripture says they were tax collectors and sinners. And, and so what that means is that they were different than the religious people. Now the religious people in our text were the scribes and Pharisees, but if we think about it today, they were the, you know, religiously speaking, they were part of the what we would call the the group that affiliates that are nuns. They some of them were not believers at all. Some of them were agnostic. Some of them probably uh were a part of a different political party than the average uh, religious person. Uh, they probably had more tattoos than the, the scribes and the Pharisees. They probably hung out at some different places. They frequented frequented some different establishments. They had different stickers on their car. They, uh, they probably even some of them lived a different lifestyle than the religious. And they flocked to Jesus. They flocked to him. There was something about him that just appealed to those that were far from God. And so that crowd, as that crowd began to grow, the religious folk got kind of worked up. It says there in verse 2 that they began to grumble because he ate with tax collectors and sinners. It, it bothered them that Jesus had coffee with. It bothered them that Jesus went to lunch with people that didn't look like him, didn't believe like him, and certainly didn't act like him or them. And so as the crowd grew with people that were far from God, the grumbling grew with the people that were, quote unquote, close to God. And so in the context of that environment, Jesus tells these three successive stories. And, and I'm going to review the first two and then the one we read about. And the reason he did is he wanted to communicate to the religious elite, I really care about lost people. And so he tells a story of the story of the, of the shepherd. He had a hundred lambs and he's going along and he recognized, hey, one of, my guys, one of my lambs are missing. And so the scripture says there that he, that he left the one are the ones, the 99 in in the middle of the field. And he went after the one that was lost. And when he found this lost one, he threw it on his shoulders and he comes home rejoicing and he calls together all his shepherd boys and says, you're never going to guess what happened. This sheep of mine was lost, but I found him and they begin to celebrate. And he let that sit a minute. And then he says, and there was a widow. Now, again, he's talking to Pharisees, scribes, very Jewish people. He says there was a widow, she had 10 coins, 10 coins, and one of them was missing. And so she began to turn every piece of furniture upside down. She swept everywhere. She combed her house, and then she found that coin. And she called all her buddies and says, you're never going to guess what happened. I had lost this coin, but it's found. And they began to celebrate. And then Jesus tells a story we just read about there were two sons. And one of them lost and was dead and was far away. And when he came home, he rejoiced. And so Jesus tells this story, if you will, to communicate that he has this great passion for that which is lost. And in fact, he has this great passion for those who are Lost because again they were flocking to him. I mean they they were they were beating themselves. I mean they, they were beside themselves to be able uh, to get uh, to be able to get to Jesus. You know the question is what what fueled Jesus' mission was his compassion. For those who are lost. When you look in the Gospels, I mean, you see Jesus doing this. Remember the story? He goes to have dinner with the Pharisee, and the Pharisee doesn't give him any water to wash his feet or anything. This woman comes in, a woman of the city. That's a nice way to say this hooker, this prostitute comes in. This woman that sells her body uh, to whoever would take it. She comes in, and and she has encountered Jesus, and she brings this, this perfume, and she breaks this perfume, and she begins to weep and begins to wash and anoint Jesus' feet. And you know the story, the, uh, the Pharisees sitting here thinking, man, if he knew what she was, he wouldn't be letting her do that. And remember what Jesus said? He said, Simon. You know, if, if somebody owed $50 and somebody owed $500 and, and the person they owed forgave the debt, who would be the most grateful? And, and some says, oh, the one who had the most debt. And then Jesus makes the application. I've forgiven this woman with great sin. He showed, he demonstrated his passion for that which is lost. And, and you know the story of the Samaritan woman. We talked about it uh, a number of occasions. Uh, she was a half-breed, uh, part Gentile or part sinner, part Jew. Uh, she was a woman. And besides that, she was a, divo- a five-time divorcee. And she was so ashamed of her, of her life that she wouldn't go to the well when everybody else went. So she went in the middle of the day, in the heat of the day. And Jesus struck up a conversation with her. I mean, he should never talk, to, a Jewish man never talked to a woman in public that wasn't his wife. A, a Jewish person never talked to a, a Samaritan half You never did that. And Jesus had a conversation with her and demonstrating his passion for that which is life. And then we could talk about Zacchaeus. I've already mentioned him. But here's the thing. What, what fueled Jesus' mission was he had this great passion for people who were far away from God. I mean, not, not just people that, that, that were sinners, but, man, they were far from God. And his mission was fueled by that passion. And so the question that we kind of need to wrap our minds around with a little bit this morning is, is do we have that passion for people who are lost. Do do we have that the passion Jesus had for people who are who are far away from God? Cause see, it's one thing to want to share Christ with people that are like us, but it's something else when they're not. And and f I don't know about you, but I find myself lacking passion. You know. I mean, I may be driving in Austin and, you know, if you go ever red light, like, there's a guy with a sign. And it's somehow, somehow, usually, I conveniently wind up in the other lane. So I don't have to. Now you, surely, none of you would ever do that. But I often find myself lacking the compassion that Jesus had. And to, to, to make his point really stick, Jesus tells a story about this father with two sons. And he talks about this son and he kind of sets it up really, really neat. You know, he talks about how this son goes to his father and, you know, basically says, uh, hey, dad, I wish you were dead. Because if you were dead, then I would get my inheritance. In fact, dad, why, why don't you just give me the money that I've got coming to me? I mean, hey, sooner or later you're going to die. I'm going to get a third of it because I'm the younger son. My older brother's going to get it. Why don't you just go ahead and give me what's coming to me? And, and, and kind of to show, in his story, to, to, to show the passion uh, that Jesus has, the, the father says, okay, I will do that. And so he, he gives his one-third of his possessions. He gives the inheritance to this son. knowing. I mean, he knows that what he's going to do with it. And so he gives it away. And, and the scripture says, not many days later. Now, why did he not leave that day? Because his his father probably had property, probably had grain, probably had livestock. And so probably what had to happen is when he got his possession, he had to sell all that off so he could have the money. And so we just assumed that he sold it all off. And if he did it in not many days, he probably sold it for a few cents on the dollar of what it was really worth. Imagine this father watching this son who had said, I wish you were dead by by his actions and then watches him sell off this stuff he's worked for. And then he gets it all together and he goes away into a far country. I don't know, maybe he went to Vegas. Uh, who knows, maybe New York City. Could have been Cozumel. I, I don't, but he went somewhere and and he wasted it on on riotous living, or some translations say profligate living. I mean, we, you know, maybe he went and spent it all on prostitutes. Maybe he went and spent it all on gambling. Maybe he just went and just lived it up. We don't know how he did it, but what we know is that he did it. He went and he wasted everything that his father had given him. And it just so happened when the money ran out, the economy went south. And so, man, there was a famine in the land. Nobody had anything to eat. Least of all, this guy that's from a foreign land, and he's got no money. And so he's desperate and he cannot save himself. And so Jesus sets this story up to say this guy is is trapped in a faraway place and he's helpless. He's helpless. Stephen Smith, in his work on this passage, tells an interesting story uh, about uh, a guy named uh, I think it's uh, Scott O'Grady. He was a pilot, in uh, he was part of the Na- he was part of the American military, the NATO force in over Bosnia. Early June of 1995, uh, this pilot and his wingman were flying. Uh, interestingly enough, they were flying over a no-fly zone, they were patrolling a no-fly zone over Bosnia, uh, during the Bosnia and Serbian conflict. And, and as they were, this particular day I think it was overcast, but, but, but for whatever happened, they're, they're flying along and the rebels evidently heard their, their planes coming and they flipped on their anti-aircraft missiles, their surface-to-air missiles, and and before, and because they couldn't see, and because they just turned this, this anti-aircraft on, before they could do anything, the pilot noticed on his radar there were two missiles coming. And one exploded between his F-16 and the other, but the second missile hit the belly of his plane, the belly of his jet. and And... As soon as that happened, instinct took over. He reaches up, he pulls the latch, he's ejected from the cockpit. The plane explodes, burns up, the other pilot sees it. He doesn't see him parachute. He just sees the the, the plane go into flames. And so so this pilot is 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 ejected into air. He's floating. You know, and he he's as he gets under the the ceiling where he can begin to see, he sees all these rebels and these soldiers in different places. And, and so, and, and he doesn't know who's friendly and who's not. And so he hits the ground, and as quickly as possible, he cuts away his parachute, and he cuts away everything, and he grabs his, his knapsack, and he begins to run to escape. And at some point, he realizes, I don't know which way to go. And so finally, he says, I've just got to hide. And so his training again kicks in. And he covers his face and he finds him a ditch and he just, he just hides. And the rebels get so close, he can, he can hear them, you know, just take their, he he can hear them hitting their rifles, trying to spook him, but they don't find him. Night falls and day one. And then, you know, he probably moves around a little bit and then he hides himself for day two and he begins to eat leaves and eat grass and berries and bugs. And day two passes. Because he he knows you 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 don't break radio silence or the enemy will find you. And then day three passes, and day four passes, and day five passes, and, and day six. And, and and the issue is he's he's lost behind he he's he's in a in a far country and he's lost and he cannot help himself. Now, if we go back to our story about the prodigal son, he finds himself in the same situation. He's now broke. He's now in a faraway land. There's nothing he can do to help himself. He would hired himself out, he, but, but he can't make, couldn't really make any money, uh, and, and he, he couldn't eat any of the pods, and finally he realizes, hey, hey, my father has some hired men. My father's hired men have something to eat. And so he says, I'll go home. And what he does, he makes up this story. He makes up this story and says, okay, I'm going to go home and I'm going to tell my dad this. You know, so, he, so he fabricates this unique story. and He says, I'm going to go home and I'm going to tell my father, hey, father, here's what's happening. What he, what he doesn't recognize is the passion that the father has for him who is lost. Look down in your Bible there at chapter 15. Let's look at verse 20 and just kind of pick up our story there. Uh, you know, he's, he's kind of made this decision. I, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make, I've made up this story. I'm going to go home. I'm going to tell my dad this this big, long story. Uh, none of us have ever made up a story to go home and tell our, our parents probably, but, but he makes this story up. Look at verse 20. And he arose and came to his father. But now watch this. But while, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced and kissed him. Let, let me do a side note here. When, when, he, when he said to dad, dad, I wish you were dead, I want my money. He said bye to his family, but he also said goodbye to his faith. And in the Jewish faith, in the Jewish culture, when you cursed your father, like he cursed his father, you really set yourself up to be be stoned. I mean, read the Old Testament law. If a man cursed his father, he could be stoned. Now it could be, it could be that the reason that the father was watching so carefully, it could be that the reason the father ran so quickly was he ran to save his son because he knew if this son who had cursed him, this, this son who had turned his back on his family, this son who had turned his back on his family, it could be that, that when he got back to that community, the community would have took him and stoned him because the way he treated his father. And so this father, this middle-aged or maybe older-aged father, you know, a man of property, a man of dignity, a man that was well-respected... He somehow he girds up his tunic. You know, they didn't have Nike and Under Armour then, and they didn't have tennis shoes, but he girds up this outfit he has, and this respectable, well-thought-of father begins to run to this son who had blackballed him. And he humbles himself. And with great passion, he goes to rescue his son. In fact, uh, the picture there is the picture of Jesus. You know, in Philippians 2, the Bible says that, that Jesus humbled himself, right? He humbled himself. He emptied himself, himself of the glory of God and became obedient to the, to the point of death, even death on a cross, and so what we see in our text is not simply the passion that the father has for the lost. But let's, let's read further along in, in 20. Uh, While he was still a long way off, the father saw him, felt compassion, ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father didn't even listen. He he did not even listen. The father, instead of listening to his son, he turned to his servants and says, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And so what we see there is not just passion for the lost, but what we see is a father that's willing to pursue after that which is lost. See, it's one thing to be passionate for somebody that's lost, but it's totally something else to pursue them with everything that you have. And and that's really what the father did. That's what the father, he he went after this son and pursued after this son with everything that he had. He had a pursuit for the lost. How often, how often, do we go after that which is lost? How often do we do that? Dr. Smith and his work on this, he, he, he made an interesting observation on how, how we in the church, not so much us, but the church in general, how we typically respond to, to those who are lost. He said typically a church has one of three approaches. Uh, one is the rejection approach, and that that is that if, if somebody's different than us, if they behave different, look different, vote different, or live different, uh, some churches just say we, we reject them. Hey, if they got themselves into that, they can get themselves out. Uh, so they, that's the rejection approach. He said secondly, some churches take the, the acceptance approach, and that is that, hey, we're... Hey, if you come to our church and, and you're not like us and, and you don't know Jesus, we, we're so glad that you're here, you hey, come in, here is a cup of coffee and here's a cookie. Hey, we're going to hang out with you, I'd love for you to sit with me. Hey just come on in. Hey, we, we, hey, we want you to know that Jesus we know. Now we're not going to go out there and try to find you, but if you come here, we're going to welcome you and we're going to accept you. And so you feel free to come. He says, Jesus didn't do the rejecting approach. Jesus didn't even do the the accepting approach. Jesus went further. Jesus sought out the one who was lost. And he said, if we're going to be like Jesus, we've got to be willing to go after. We've got to be willing to seek after those who are lost. We can't just, we certainly can't reject him. We can't just say, hey, if you find your way here, we'll welcome you. If we're going to be like Jesus, then we've got to be willing to go after those who are far from God. Now, as we go back to our story about uh, our pilot, on day six, I'm sure he's hungry. I'm sure he's tired of being scared and alone. And so he decides to break radio silence. So on June 8th, 1995, right after midnight, he breaks radio silence, and maybe he heard the pilot, but there was a pilot from his squadron, it may have been his wingman, I'm not sure, but the pilot from his squadron, he heard the radio communication, they had a series of codes, doubtless, and, and he picked up on that, and, and as they went through this, he recognized, that's our man, our pilot, the guy that shot down, he's, he, he's alive, he's, he's there, he's trapped behind enemy lines, but, but he's there. And so he probably, you know, he makes his way back to the ship and he radios in and says, hey, I found him, I found him, I found him. And so at, at this moment, the military, the military's got to decide, what are we going to do? We, we've got someone that's lost. He's trapped. He's behind enemy lines. He's trapped. He's lost. What are we going to do? Or they, they could have taken the, that rejection approach that some churches do that, hey, hey, he made his bed, he can sleep in it. We we don't want to hang out with a pilot that can't see a missile coming. Tough, you know. No, obviously they wouldn't do that. Or they could, like some churches, say, Well, we're we're gonna we're not not gonna go after him, but if he can find his way here, in fact, we're gonna we're gonna put a banner on the back of the aircraft carrier that says, All pilots who have been shot down are welcome. And if he can make his way to the to the shoreline, and if he can get in a boat or whatever, if he can find his way to the airship, we're, he's. We're going to welcome him here. In fact, if he comes, we got our banner. If he comes, we're going to give him a cup of coffee. We're going to. We got a snack for him. We're going to. We're going to put him in a group. Hey, if he could just find his way back here, we're going to welcome him in. Now they could have done that, but according to uh, an article in, in uh, I, re- I read about it in in Time and in some other places. The military decided, rather than just wait for him, we're going to go after him. Now listen, this is one guy, one man, trapped behind enemy lines. Here's, here's what, according to the here's what they did. They, they mobilized two CH-53C stallions with 51 Marines from the 3rd Battalion uh, of the 8th Marines, uh, this, these two aircraft lifted off the USS Kearsarge to rescue the pilot. They were, these two ha- helicopters were accompanied by two Marine Super Cobra helicopter gunships and a pair of Marine Harrier jump jets. Now, these six aircraft had support from identical sets of replacement helicopters and jump jets as well as two Navy Prowler electronic warfare planes two Air Force Raven electronic warfare planes, two Marine Hornets, a pair of anti-tank Air Force A-10 Warthogs, and an AWACS plane. So imagine there's one guy lost and the military mobilizes some 30 aircraft plus the personnel, 51 Marines, because they have one guy lost and trapped behind the enemy lines. They wanted this to happen, but by the time everything transpired, they wanted it to happen in the dark. It was it was at the break of day. And the first one of those sea stallions sets down, and about 20 or so Marines get out and they build a perimeter, and, and evidently I'm sure they put out some smoke or whatever, and then the guy comes running out and he's got his, his nine millimeter, and they disarm him and they look him in the eye, they do whatever, and they go, This is our guy. And so they throw him before the other Marines could even get out of the plane, they throw this guy onto the helicopter, and, and up they go, and, and off they go, and they I think they They encountered a little bit of trouble as they got to the coastline. But imagine, I mean, think about this. In just a few hours, this guy goes from caught behind enemy lines to sitting on an aircraft carrier safe and secure and alive. And the reason he could and the reason he did is because the military was willing to spare no expense and to expend every resource for one guy who's lost. Now, the question that I want us to try to wrestle with, what are we willing to do as a church for people that are far from God, but really close around us that are lost? What, what price are we willing to pay to go after them so that they can go from trapped and lost and alone and spiritually dead to alive and well and eternal? What price, church, are we willing to pay? Now, I begin with this question. It says, what are you going to do this year that's going to last and matter for eternity? Now, there's probably there's probably a lot of things we could do, but I'm convinced that, that one thing I know we can do is if there's somebody in your circle of life, somebody in your circle of influence, maybe you work with them, maybe uh, they live in your area, your neighborhood, maybe you play ball with them, maybe y'all share lockers, uh, whatever the case may be. But if there's somebody in your circle of influence that's far from God, I- imagine if you devoted yourself this year that you're gonna, you gonna have passion for them that Jesus had, that you're gonna pursue them like Jesus had. I- imagine what would happen if, if at the end of this year that person that you care about came to know Christ and he crossed over from spiritual death to spiritual life, and his eternity would be different forever. Now, just to, just think with it. Imagine what would happen. Imagine what kind of impact you'd have on that person. Now, if all of us, if all of us, found our one person and committed ourselves to pray for that one person and committed ourselves to to share with that one person, then some of those one persons would come to Christ and they would be different forever and if all of us if all of us shared imagine the influence it would have on our church but imagine what it would do for our community if you and I decided that this year in the middle of all the other stuff that we're doing this year we I am going to pour my life into somebody this is far from God. Because, listen, people matter to God more than anything. More than anything, people matter to God. Would you bow your heads with me for just a moment? As we bring our time together to a close, here's, here's, here's your assignment. This is, not, this is not a rhetorical assignment. Here's what I'm asking you to do. If you're a follower of Jesus... My challenge to you this morning and my charge to you this morning, who is that one person that's in your life? You play ball with them. They work across the aisle from you. They live two, two houses down, one street over. You work out at the gym together. I, I don't know who they are, but who's that person? Would you be willing this year to commit to pray for them and then to pursue them and to share with them the gospel of the kingdom of God. And so I want to challenge you this morning to write down a name that, you know, each week we give some kind of invitation. Sometimes I invite you to come and join our church. Sometimes I invite you to to come and surrender your life to Christ. And, And if you've never given your life to Christ, man, he's pursued you with great passion. I hope you'll give your life to Christ today. In fact, when we're done, if, if you want to talk about that, I'll be here at the front. I'd love to talk to you. But today, the message is to believers. And the challenge is, who are you willing to invest in this year? And I want you to write down a name. And when you come back next week, in the next couple of weeks, we're going to ask you. I, I'm going to ask you. Because here's what I want for you, and here's what I want for me. I, I, I want this year for us to do something that will matter forever and people matter forever. And so I'm gonna pray for you and I'm just gonna invite you uh, to write down that name. And so Father, I pray that that the weight of of our influence and our opportunity would lean upon us. Father, that that what we do matters, how we pray for people matters, how we pursue people for the sake of the gospel matters. And, and Father, my, my hope is that today we would go away, uh, Lord, not, not comfortable, but God, my hope is that today we would go away with, with a little bit of angst in our heart for, for somebody and that that angst would have a face. And that that angst would have a name and there would be a desire of our heart to influence someone for eternity.